0: I want to invite you to open your Bible with me to the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 25, and as we're turning there today, I I just want to let you know I'm going to give you a lot of scripture, Uh, but if you'll stay in Matthew 25, and if you're a note taker, just jot down some of these other references that will uh, allow us to get through them quickly, and and I want to encourage you to go back and study these out for yourself through the week and, and just look at God's word, let it speak to your heart. I want to tell you, as I was getting ready to start this series, uh, back at at the beginning of last month, I was praying about what this series would look like, talking about breakthrough, and and my thought process went something like this. I thought, I'm going to preach about the hard things like fasting before we do the fast, because some of you are doing the fast with us right now, and then when we get to uh, the actual fast, man, we're just going to have good church. We're just going to preach about breakthrough. I'm going to preach all the best Topics about people pressing in and touching Jesus and their life changing and we're just gonna have great church. And I was looking forward to doing that. I had a list of all the breakthrough stories in the Bible, but but then God began to speak to my heart and, and the last two weeks have, have looked slightly different than what I originally thought. But I want to tell you what happened the last two weeks pales in comparison to how different this message is gonna be. Okay. Let me just give you the heads up right at the beginning. Something happened a week and a half ago that that just absolutely moved my heart in a different direction. I was sitting on my couch watching the, the news, as I'm sure many of you have done over the last uh, several weeks, and looking at the, just the, <laughs> the devastation in the Ukraine, everything that's happening with the invasion by Russia. And as I'm watching that news, and, and, and my mind is just kind of going uh, along that, those lines, one thought just shot off in my heart like a cannon. And and when it did, it just shifted everything about this service today. And the thought was this. The Lord said to me in that moment as I'm watching the evening news, Jesus is about to break through. Jesus is about to break through. Now, I I don't know if you know what I mean when I say that, but I'm going to tell you this morning exactly what I mean. In Acts chapter 1, verse 11, Jesus is on the other side of Easter Sunday. Forty days after his resurrection, Jesus begins to ascend in bodily form up to heaven. The disciples are standing around and they're watching him go up into the sky. And two angels appear to them dressed in white. And this is what they said. Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking in the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven in the same way. That means Jesus is coming back literally, he's coming back physically, he's coming back visibly the same way that you're watching him right now, this man that you've known, followed for the last three and a half years, the same way he's going up, you're going to see him come back again. So let me just say, if you're here today and maybe you're not a a Bible believer or or, or maybe this whole church thing is kind of new to you, you should know this about us. We believe as a church, and I'm not talking about this local church, I mean the people of God, we believe that Jesus is coming back. Amen. Amen. We believe that. And in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus actually talked about that. He talked about that reality that's coming in our future. Look at verse 27 with me. Jesus said, and this is all Jesus speaking in chapter 24, For as the lightning flashes in the east, and it shines in the west, so it will be when the Son of Man comes. In other words, everybody's going to see it. Now, I just gave you two prophecies, one from angels and the other from Jesus himself, declaring that he is coming again. But I want you to know that's just two examples of hundreds of verses in the Bible that speak of the coming of the Lord. In fact, one Bible scholar counted all of the predictions in the entire Bible, and the number he came up with was 1,817. 1,817 predictions in the Bible of future events. That's 1,239 in the Old Testament, 578 in the New Testament. So this is not just like an Old Covenant, Old Testament thing. Over 1,800 verses predicting the future. Now let me tell you what's the most encouraging thing about that number. That half of those predictions have already been fulfilled. They've already happened. So so I don't know what that does for you, but when I think about that reality, it does two things for me. First of all, it tells me I can absolutely have confidence in the authority of this book. I can believe in the authoritative word of God. Peter, the apostle, talked about it in 2 Peter chapter 1. He said this, we also have a prophetic message as something completely reliable. Can I tell you today, your Bible is completely reliable. He said, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, he says, you must understand. Now, if the guy that was best friends with Jesus, the guy that walked on water, the guy that was the father of the New Testament church and preached on the day of Pentecost, if that guy says above all else, how many of you think what he says might be important next? Above all else, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. You got to know that when you're reading the Bible. This was not, you know, Paul didn't sit down in a prison cell and go, you know what? I think I'll write a book of the Bible. No, it didn't happen that way. And these prophecies, he said, there's no way you have to understand this. There's no way that things, these things, could have come about by somebody's own interpretation of it. It's just, it's just not possible. You have to know that. In fact, scientifically, mathematically, it's impossible. There was a group that came together, and they, uh, researchers led by a mathematics professor, they did a study to compute the chances. What are the odds that just one person could fulfill eight? prophecies in their lifetime. What are the odds that one person could fulfill eight biblical prophecies in their lifetime? The result they came up with in their computation was one in a hundred quadrillion. That's a 100 with 15 zeros after it. That's the odds that one person in their lifetime could fulfill eight different biblical prophecies, and yet Jesus fulfilled 110 Old Testament prophecies in his life, in his birth, in his ministry, in his death, in his resurrection. Skeptics and bloggers and YouTubers will always be around to debunk the authority of God's word, but I'm telling you, you cannot argue with the authenticity of this book. It's been time-tested over and over again. So... so so how, did we, how do we get it? Look at the next verse in 1 Peter. Verse 21 says this, for prophecy, it never had its origin in the human will. So he says it didn't come by a prophet's own interpretation. And then he says it never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So so Paul didn't write something, Peter didn't write something, James didn't write something, and then God says, oh, that's good, you know, I think I'll bless that. And, And they didn't go into some, like, you know, catatonic state or have some kind of spiritual seizure where their hand was involuntarily writing. No, the presence of God came on their life, it says. And they wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul talked about it when explaining the power of the gospel The power of God's word to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he said this. He said, Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed. Like the breath of God is on the page. All scripture from Genesis to Revelation, from Job to Malachi, it's all God-breathed. And he said, it's useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's why the last verse in Matthew chapter 24, the text we're open to today, the last verse, Jesus says this. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. Knowing what we know about prophecy ought to encourage us to know that I can trust the authenticity of God's word. The second thing it ought to do is it ought to give us an incredible confidence about the prophecies that haven't yet been fulfilled. I, I mean, if, if half of the over 1,800 prophecies have already been fulfilled, and we can, we can look at it, we can see it, we can document it, then it ought to give us an incredible sense of confidence. It ought to make us sit up a little higher and lean in when we hear Jesus talking about what it's going to be like in the last days. Did you know the New Testament, not in the whole Bible, just the New Testament, talks about the second coming of the Lord 300 times? That, that's one in every 26 verses in the New Testament. Over, and so this is not a, a sideline issue, is what I want you to know. This is not like, oh, well, that's, that, that might be kind of important to some people, but really, we just want to focus on this over here. No, this is one of our four cardinal doctrines as a church. These are the the foundation stones that that drive and compel us to do what we do and and to move at the pace that we move. As a church, we believe that Jesus is coming again. In fact, I want to put our doctrinal statement up on the screen. We believe in the blessed hope. That's what the Bible calls this hope, that Jesus is coming again for his church, the blessed hope. When Jesus raptures his church prior to his return to earth, which is the second coming. At this future moment in time, all believers who have died will rise from their graves, and they will meet the Lord in the air, and Christians who are alive will be caught up with them to be with the Lord forever. Somebody seeing that for the first time might say, you, you, you believe that? You believe? Why, why, do, you, why do you believe that? Well, I want to show you in the word of God, the most clear teaching on the rapture of the church. It's in first Thessalonians chapter four, beginning in verse 15, Paul is explaining to Christians why they don't have to be worried about believers that died before Jesus came back because they were so convinced the church was so convinced. Jesus said he's coming back in the same way he left. Where's he at? And they're preaching that, and they're believing that, and they're living by faith, but they're getting a little older, and somebody got sick, and there was an accident. Whatever the circumstance was, somebody died. And the church, for the first time, started to wonder, wait a minute, wait a minute. If you die before Jesus comes back, then what happens? And so Paul writes this letter, and he tells them these words. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive and are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Sherry, that means Lisa's getting there first. I just did her sister's funeral yesterday. And I'm telling you, unapologetically, I thank God for the opportunity to share scriptures just like this one. Because I know Lisa was a believer. Because Lisa had hope in Jesus, this verse is talking about her and all your loved ones that died in faith. It's talking about their physical bodies. The Bible says in another place, to be absent from the body is to be in the presence of the Lord. That means the soul doesn't sleep, that we're not just laying there in the yard somewhere waiting for Jesus to call us home. No, to be absent from the body, spiritually, our soul is in the presence of Jesus. But Paul's talking about what happens to these bodies. What happens? He says the dead in Christ will rise first. That's why when I'm walking through a cemetery, I don't like to step over the plots, you know, I like to go around them just in case, you know what I mean? Like, hey, the dead in Christ rise first, so I don't want to get hit, you know, on the, <laughs> on the going up morning. I don't want to be taken out by great-grandma, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> seriously, it says in verse 16, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, verse 17, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Notice, the Lord's not coming down and touching the ground. We're going to meet him in the air at the rapture. It says, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Now you got to hear verse 18 because he follows this with these words. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, I always emphasize that because I don't know what your church background or if you have a church background is, but I got to be honest, I grew up scared to death of the rapture. I did. I mean, if I got home from school and somebody was supposed to be there and nobody was there, (laughs) I started thinking about, like, who's the most spiritual person who I, I know their phone number because this was pre-cell phones, you know, so I just call somebody in the church, like somebody really old and spiritual, and be like, hello, like click. (laughs) Mom must be at the grocery store. But Paul says, when we talk about these things, when we look at these things, encourage each other with these words. This is not to inspire fear. This is not to manipulate somebody's emotions or to coerce you into making a a, a decision based on on emotion. No, he says you ought to encourage each other with these words. And he was so convinced that he and some of those he was writing to were going to be alive when it happened. He said, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet them. Like he's talking about the people that already died, not the ones that will die. Because Paul believed, all the apostles in the early church believed, and we should believe. That Christ is coming back in our lifetime. What am I talking about today? I'm talking about a breakthrough. I'm talking about a breakthrough. He's describing the rapture of the church. I believe the rapture of the church is the next event on God's end time calendar. I believe it's going to be the moment that sets all the other moments in motion. Paul talked about it in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51, when he said this, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. He's talking about those who are alive and remain. The dead in Christ, they're gonna rise. Their bodies will be glorified. They'll, they'll meet Jesus in the air. But what about us who are alive? We, we, don't, we have a body, it's working. And some of us are like, sort of, but it's working. And, and but it's going to be changed in that moment. It'll be changed, he says, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye. That, that's faster than a blink. That's a flutter. In a moment, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we, again, he thought he's talking about himself, we will be changed. The church is going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And the Bible communicates to us in 2 Corinthians 5.10 that we will go to the judgment seat of Christ. The dead in Christ and the living in Christ will be raptured out of this world. Our soul will be reunited with our glorified bodies. You say, what's a glorified body like? Well, I always tell people, just look at Jesus. That's the best best definition of a glorified body. He came out of the tomb. he, He was still real. They touched the scars in his hands. They put their hand in his side. He ate fish with them. He was real. They recognized his voice print and his face, but yet he could walk through the walls and come into a room where the doors were locked on a Sunday night. He hasn't aged from that moment to this moment. It's a glorified body. And the Bible says that the dead in Christ and the living in Christ are gonna be raptured up and we're gonna go to the judgment seat. And in 2 Corinthians 5.10, it tells us that is not a, a seat of judgment for sin because our sin was already dealt with at the cross. So aren't you thankful the Bible says in Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So if there's no condemnation, there's no reason to have judge or jury. There's no court session. What this is, don't think courtroom judge. Think Olympic panel of judges because that's the picture Paul uses. So it's not pass or fail it's, it's 9 out of 10. It's 7 out of 10. Literally, the Bible says that the believers will go before the judgment seat of Christ and we will receive rewards for the deeds done in the body. That's what's going to happen in that moment. But what's also going to happen in that moment is when the church exits this world, all of a sudden the door will be open for the onset of the Antichrist in the beginning of the tribulation period. The Bible describes a seven-year period called the tribulation It is the time when the Antichrist will come on the the scene. But 2 Thessalonians tells us why we don't see the Antichrist today. Because a lot of people are out there trying to guess who he is. Like, well, maybe it's this guy. Well, maybe it's that guy. Maybe it's that dictator. Maybe it's that world leader. We don't know who the Antichrist is. Honestly, my conviction is I think the devil kind of tees up an Antichrist in every generation. Like, he's got one ready because he wants to begin to wreak havoc on the world. The problem is the devil's not in control of the end times. The end times are God's times. So those guys keep being raised up, they get old, they die or shot, and then he has to find somebody else to be the antichrist. The Bible says in 2 Thessalonians that it is the the man of lawlessness will not be revealed until the one who holds him back is removed. Do you know who's holding back who he is? That's us, the church. We're the remnant people. We're the salt of the earth. We're preserving morality and the gospel in this world. But when the light goes out, When the preservative is gone, the door opens, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, and the seven-year tribulation begins, and it ends with what the Bible calls the Battle of Armageddon. It's an all-out war waged against the nation of Israel, an all-out war. But just before the war breaks out and Israel is destroyed by her enemies, the Bible says in that moment is the second coming of the Lord. Jesus is coming again. This time, not to call us to meet him in the air, but the Bible says he'll come down and his feet will touch down on the Mount of Olives. Right there, overlooking the Valley of Jehoshaphat. He will step down on the Mount of Olives and he will bring judgment and war to his enemies. I I want you to see this picture in Revelation chapter 19. Verse 11 says this. This is John, the revelator He's getting a glimpse. God told him in Revelation 1, I'm gonna show you the things that, that were, the things that are, and the things that will be. These are the things that will be. John said, I saw heaven open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider was called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and he wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He's dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him. That's you and me, church. We're coming back. And he said, they're following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The first time he came, it was as a little baby in a manger, to be the savior of the world. But I'm telling you, the next time he comes, it's not going to be as a little baby in swaddling clothes. He's coming back with a robe dipped in blood, with an iron scepter in his hand, and fire in his eyes, and a sword in his mouth, and he's going to come riding a white horse as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's coming to conquer. When he comes again, Jesus is going to break through. He's going to break through. When you look at all the things that are happening in our world today it ought to cause expectation to rise for that day he talked about it with his disciples look at it with me there in Matthew 24 verse 3 he says it says as Jesus was sitting there on the mount of olives the disciples came to him privately and they said tell us when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming end of the end of the age. And Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. So he's saying that's not the end, The end still to come. These things have to happen before the end comes. So if you're thinking, wow, man, the nations are raging right now. People are getting ready. It might look like a conflict. Well, that conflict happens at the end of the seven-year tribulation. But we're seeing the things beginning to happen. Well, what does that mean? Look at verse 7. He says, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Verse 8. All these things are the beginning of birth pains it's that first moment where you go, I think it's time. It's the beginning of birth pains. When we look at what's happening in our world, we look at the war in Ukraine and the rumors of other wars and and nations aligning together, nations against nations. When we look at the global pandemic that we've just endured, I mean, if that's not a plague, I don't know what a plague is. We look at all the things that are happening in our own culture, as sodomy is being celebrated and educated in our public school systems to our children. Jesus said these are the beginning of birth pains. Look down in verse 12 in the same chapter. He says, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. There's a couple of things that we see happening right now. One is right here, the love of many is growing cold. There's a lot of people that think maybe law, if God's in control, man, he's lost his grip because, I mean, look where our world's going. Look how, how angry people are. Look how hostile people are. You know what's happening? Exactly what Jesus said is going to happen. The love of many is growing cold. It's ironic that our watchword in our culture is tolerance, and yet at the same time, cancel culture is the new norm. I mean, zero tolerance for, for any of your uh, failures. You, you mess up once, and man, the keyboard warriors are going to persecute you and crucify you on the internet. And, and that's the world, what's happening. When you know, the, the road rage and the, the reactions and the hostility that we see, it's the love of many growing cold. But then he says, this is also going to happen. Verse 14. In this same time, while the love of many grows cold, this gospel, he says, of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. He said the gospel is going to be preached to the whole world, to all the nations, to people groups. Now, borders changed, and they still change, but that word nations means people groups, ethnos. Ethnos. And he says, when the Bible is proclaimed, when the gospel is proclaimed to the whole world, the end's going to come. Can I tell you that in 1940, Bible translators began to set a lofty, ambitious goal of translating the word of God into every language on the face of the earth. That was their goal in 1940s, but they were greatly disheartened over the task when studies came out over the next several decades revealing that there are more than 7,300 languages. And it was like, whoa, this is just too, this was never gonna happen. But can I tell you in 2022, we're not that far. We're not that far away. In fact, I just read recently in the news, there are 10 Bible translation companies, 10 organizations that, that exist to translate the Bible that have all come together to start a project called Illuminations. And their sole purpose of this organization is to make God's word accessible to all people by 2033. That's their goal. That's the goal. And here's some of their their ambitions. That 95% of the world's population will have a complete Bible in their language by 2033. That's a Bible for every people group that has 500,000 or more people that speak that language. 95%. They also are aiming that 99.96% of the world's people will have at least the New Testament by 2033. And that even the smallest languages in need of Scripture will have at least some Bible chapters by 2033. I'm telling you, church, it's going to happen. I'm not trying to name a time or a date or tell you, I'm just telling you it's gonna happen. And I'm not saying it's gonna happen because I read something about the Illuminations Project. I'm telling you it's gonna happen because God promised in his word it's gonna happen. In Genesis 22, he told Abraham, he said, you're gonna be the father of many nations and I'm gonna bless all the nations through you. And that's exactly what he's done. It was the Jewish people that gave us the word of God. Moses came off the mountain with God's laws. The Jews gave us that. It was the Jewish people that gave us our Messiah. Jesus Christ. And so the nations have been blessed through God's people. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 9, it says, All the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God, even as the waters cover the sea. I've noticed something about the ocean. There's no dry places in the ocean. Jesus said the way that water covers the sea, the knowledge of God is going to cover the earth. It's going to happen. What if, what if translating the gospel into every language is the fulfillment of Matthew 24, 14? Now, I don't know that it is. I'm just saying, what if, what, if, what if that moment when the gospel is printed in every language for every people group, what if that's the fulfillment? But my thought is, if getting the gospel printed in every language is within our reach, Certainly, somebody proclaiming that gospel in every language is even closer because Jesus didn't say this gospel will be printed in every nation and then the end will come. He said it's going to be preached in every language to every people and then the end will come. Church, I'm telling you, Jesus is breaking through. He's breaking through. Look at verse 36 in Matthew 24. Jesus said, but about that day and that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the sun, but only the Father. We don't know the day. We don't know the time, but the signs of the time will indicate the season. Remember what Jesus said in verse 8. All these things are the beginning of birth pains. You know how birth pains work, right? You have one, and then 15 minutes later, maybe you have another one, but the closer they get together, when you start seeing the signs consistently, close together, it ought to communicate to you that, hey, something is about to break through. Something's about to happen. He says that's what we're seeing. And I want you to know, ultimately, church, you actually have a part in determining when Jesus comes. You have a part. I want to ask the worship team to come back, and I want, to just, I want you to just consider the words of the apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3. He said this. But the day of the Lord, he's talking about when Jesus comes, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. In other words, you won't be expecting it. You won't be ready for it. He'll come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Church, I can't think of a better question than that. I can't think of a better question that we should ask ourselves. If Jesus is really coming, what kind of people should we be? Here's what he says. You ought to live holy and godly lives. Do you have that verse? 2 Peter 3.11. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. He said, don't don't just look for it. Don't just wait for it. Speed the coming of the Lord. How do we do that? Well, one way is purity. He says, in light of the fact that Jesus is coming, you ought to live a holy and a godly life. Can I remind you, church, Jesus is coming back for a spotless bride. He's coming back for a radiant bride. He's coming back for a redeemed people, a glorious people, not a perfect people, but we ought to be in light of the fact that he's coming. We ought to be prepared. We ought to be making ourselves ready. He said, live a holy and a godly life. Why? Because Jesus is coming again. Right after Matthew 24, Jesus tells a parable and he says, this is what the coming of the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. He tells a parable about 10 virgins who were waiting for the bridegroom to come. Half of them were ready. Half of them were not. Half of them didn't have enough oil to keep their lamps lit. And they went to the the other five and they said, can you give us oil? And they said, if we give you our oil, we might not have enough. You got to make yourself ready. And that's true for you. It's true for me. I can't be saved for you. You can't ride granddad's coattails into heaven's gates. God doesn't have any grandchildren. He has sons and daughters. And they said, Listen, you got to go buy your own oil. You got to have your own relationship with Christ. You got to make yourself ready. And they went away to try to get themselves ready. But when they were gone, the bridegroom came. Jesus said, That's what it's going to be like like a thief in the night. So we have to live pure lives. Not only do we live pure lives, but we speed God's coming with our prayers. Jesus said in Matthew 9 to his disciples, he said, pray the Lord of the harvest to send workers into the harvest field. In other words, this gospel has to be preached, so what can you do? You ought to be praying for the expansion of the gospel. Not just praying for my own blessing, for my own breakthrough, for my own promotion or my own whatever, but saying, God, I long for your appearing. I long for you to break through the eastern skies. Lord, I long to see your word fulfilled in the earth. So I'm praying that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers into the harvest field, that he would rescue the perishing. The third way that we speed God's coming is through our proclamation, that we would share the good news. Church, that we would tell somebody about the reality that Jesus is coming to proclaim the good news maybe you're one of those folks that has wondered maybe even doubted the coming of the lord you're going yeah you know and i heard preachers talk about that when i was a kid i'm an old man now i i don't i don't know about all that you know i don't know peter talked about that very thought and he said these words In 2 Peter 3 and 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He said, The reason that Jesus hasn't come is because the door of salvation is still open. Because the light of the gospel is still lit. Because he's staying his judgment for moments like this. That somebody can have one more opportunity to surrender their life to Jesus. So that somebody can have one more opportunity to confess their sins to God and repent and give their life to him and commit the rest of their days to follow him. We ought to be about proclaiming the gospel church. And I'm not just talking about altar calls on weekends. I'm talking about talking to loved ones. I'm talking about difficult conversations with family and friends. We speed the Lord's coming when we fulfill His great commission. I want to invite you to stand with me all over this room. And we're going to pray right now. As we get ready to pray, I want you to know, I believe in the imminent return of Jesus. I I believe it could happen at any moment now I, I could have spent a whole nother hour talking to you about signs of the times and the things that are being fulfilled in prophecy right now but the reality is when I look at the Bible I see the New Testament church lived and died with this conviction Jesus is coming quickly And he's coming in my lifetime. He's coming. And that conviction drove them to take the gospel to the known world. They did it, they went as far as they could go with the gospel in their lifetime. And almost all of Jesus' 12 disciples died as martyrs for their faith. People don't give up their lives for a hobby. They had a conviction that Jesus is coming. And people that don't know him are gonna die and spend an eternity separated from him. We have to speed his coming by spreading the gospel. So, this is the reason I give altar calls every Sunday. It's not because I think you church folks are such bad Christians that you need to repent and give your life to Jesus again every Sunday. I do it every week for the hope that maybe, just maybe, there's someone in this room today that doesn't know Jesus. And even if it's not the end times, it might be your end time. The Bible says nobody's guaranteed tomorrow. I did a funeral yesterday. This may be your last moment. This may be my last moment to tell you Jesus is about to break through. So if you're here today and you don't know Jesus... I want to I appeal to you in this moment to not put off that decision any longer. To just say, Jesus, I give you my life. I want to pray for you. Would you bow your head with me all over this room? Every eye is closed. Every heart is open. If that's you today, and you're saying, Jesus, I surrender my life to you. I need to, I need to know. I need to know that my name is written down in the Lamb's book of life, and that when Jesus calls his church home, I'm in that number. If that's you today and you say, I need to give Jesus everything today, confessing my sins, repenting, and surrendering my life, would you raise your hand right now? Just be be honest with God in this moment say, that's me, God, I'm lifting my hand up to you. God, I need you today. Rescue me. Rescue me, Lord. In Jesus' name. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Anyone else? I'm asking for the last time right now. Anyone else say, this is me. I don't want to put off this decision. Praise God. Thank you. Thank you. I want to ask everyone to pray this prayer with those that just raised their hand. Would you just lift your voice out loud and say, dear God, thank you for sending Jesus to die for my sins. Thank you for taking the wrath that I deserved. I confess today on my own, I'm not enough. I need a savior, so I trust in you. I repent of my sin. I'm sorry that I grieved your heart. Fill me with your spirit. Help me to live a life that honors you. Thank you, Lord, for saving me, for writing my name down in the Lamb's book of life. I'm a new creation. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Can we give God praise for that? Come on, amen.